Okay, another podcast is interrupt us. So, uh, back to the grim story of Chicago crime. Lightfoot says that police face unfair criticism. People say there's just no good. There's all, they're all evil. They're all corrupt. Now, imagine if you were talking about people of color with that language. It doesn't matter what color it is. It doesn't matter what their background is. It doesn't matter what things they do to save our residents. There's no good there, Lightfoot said. And then he starts to defend, uh, she starts to defend the police about how they can rescue people who are drowning and such, you know. And she cited a rising clearance rate for homicides, which is like up from zero. Uh, And now that they're doing community service projects, well, that'll help. While they're doing that, the carjackers are uh, out there, and the shooters are out there, and the thieves are out there, and the muggers, you know. The way to serve the community is to keep the peace. Now she's spending $35 million on violence interruption groups, which actually I think is worth a try, frankly. And then this invest south slash west economic developments, well, okay, but if you don't have public safety, you're not going to be able to develop any businesses. The law and order is the, the first thing when you're trying to build businesses. Arnie Duncan, who apparently wants to be mayor for some insane reason, um, and is so naive to think that anybody of his pigmentation will ever be mayor in this town again, uh, wrote an op-ed with Alderman O'Shea saying the city is failing on crime. Now here's a quote from Lee and O'Shea. It's hard to look at the number of shootings and homicides in Chicago over the last 20 months and find a silver lining, that's for sure. This was in the slum times. Sometimes, excuse me. By every measure, our city is in crisis and our efforts to keep our communities and our police even safe are simply falling short. I would say miserably failing. Uh, But then I tend to express myself somewhat over-colorfully and emotionally. Alderman Gilbert Villegas echoed the criticism. He says, I think the statistics are showing he... Brown isn't doing a good job. There you go. She's going to increase the police department budget, and of course, the justice, social justice uh, types, Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana, no. Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez, 33, 33rd Ward, says the city's making a mistake. Every time there's been a spike in violence, we've added police officers. Historically, we've been investing in policing more than any other service in the city. In terms of budget, the main service the city provides is police. Well, why is that? (laughs) 
Now, she says they should adopt the recommendations of the Carter Commission in 1968, which cited a lack of economic opportunities in housing and a malicious criminal justice system and recommended investment in communities. Well, we've done that. That's what South Shore happened uh, about, you know. Send out outreach workers, build relationship, de-escalate tensions. People need jobs and housing. We don't have that. How much money has been spent on housing, jobs programs, the jobs corps, the education quote-unquote system? People are afraid, and it's hitting different people in different neighborhoods, uh, Lightfoot says. Now, I don't know if Jeremy is... Uh, Jeremy Gorner contributed. Now... Lori was not talking to to Caucasian reporters, so I don't know if Gregory is Caucasian. But you know, the and the only reason I bring that up, I don't care. But the first thing she brings up in every sentence is, is color. You know, and that's a big part of the problem. You certainly can't ignore that. But now there's a bizarre story in the Tribune about. You know, hockey players getting sexually harassed by a guy named Bradley Aldridge, who was a videotape coach. And it's unbelievable. you got to read the story. But back when I was a kid, I mean, you can just imagine somebody trying to assault Keith Magnuson, you know? I mean, the guy guy would have his head taken off. But things have changed, evidently, in hockey, just as they have in everything else. That's progress, I suppose. Um, In the voice of the people, there's a few good articles, a few good letters. I don't write letters to the editor anymore. Um, The first one is about uh, this Biden posture on vaccination, and I believe in that. I am all for it, and even more. A lot of people who are sympathetic with my views on other subjects are probably not sympathetic than that, but a good friend of mine just got COVID because, you know, he I guess he was anti-vax. I was told he didn't take the vaccine, and I'm like, come on. You know, they say you can't fix stupid, and this guy's not stupid. It's just that ideology blinds people to the truth. So you can't do that. I mean, the virus doesn't care about your ideology. So I'm all for mandating it as many ways as possible. And if people, you know, want to rise up and rebel on that, okay, fine. You know? Because it, what's happening is, and a, a guy I went to high school with who's a frequent sparring partner on Facebook, because he's a Bernie guy, something's, he got something, something's wrong with his head. But in any event, uh, his ex-father-in-law was unable to find a hospital bed in Wisconsin after a fall and a, an arm fracture, I think, because the hospitals are so swamped with COVID. And I read another story about somebody who died. And I mean, we all die. This guy was in his 70s, but... Uh, Went through 47 hospitals in the state of Alabama. I didn't know there were that many. No beds because of COVID. So this is, this doesn't just, you know, affect 
the person who doesn't get vaccinated. It affects people uh, who can't get hospital care because the the COVID inpatients are overwhelming the system. So I think actually the feds ought to set up like a surge. I mean, given the fact that obviously people uh, are somewhat uneducable about the vaccination, uh, we're going to have this again. And I think the feds ought to build for national defense purposes, if nothing else, uh, a whole system of, of infectious disease ICU uh, facilities to take the surge off of the private healthcare system. And I mean, we're going to end up with M4A anyway, so, but for the moment, you could justify it as national security because if there's a bioweapon attack, you know, don't think people aren't watching this who are like Dr. Evil and saying, hey, if we could vaccinate all our guys and then send one of these out west, we could really conquer them with a bioweapon. Now, sure, that's illegal, but, you know, guns are illegal in the city of Chicago. So, but you could justify the billions or trillions it would cost and throw it in the build back better thing. I don't care. But, they, you know, when when innocent people who uh, follow the rules are dying because of the, frankly, the recklessness of people who won't get vaccinated. And I know they mean well, too, but, you know, they're impacting on other people's health here. So, um, and the other thing is the longer you let that thing go out in the wild, the more it's going to mutate, and you may not like some of the mutations, right? So the best way to stop it from getting worse is to shut it down entirely and get the herd immunity. And the best way to do that is not by getting everybody sick and overwhelming the poor healthcare professionals and and crowding out people who do the right thing. So, uh, lessons from Afghanistan. We need to understand the people we are trying to help and the people we are trying to defeat, says Vic Prosciutti. No relation to the cheese, I presume. And he's from Dayton. And that's right. I read an article about Afghanistan and the in the countryside and the rural areas. You know, in the cities, we westernize people and the women are in trouble now because they're having to burn their diplomas. In the rural areas, that's not how it was. And they came to look at us as worse than the Taliban or anybody else. So they're looking at this as the end of the American war. And they're glad to have the Taliban back. And that's part of the reason that this counterinsurgency stuff ends up ending in tears. Because, you know, when we go in with a heavy footprint, then we hire these warlords and such. The parallel to Vietnam is unmistakable. You know, you go out and pound these villages because there's VC there, and then the VC would embed just to get you to pound the village, and then that village would look to them to help them get their defenses up against these helicopters and stuff. These people didn't know what was going on. It's the same thing out there in the hinterlands. I mean, these are very, very primitive people and very, very, very fundamentalist, you know, and people like to draw parallels between fundamental Christianity and Islam. There are some, you know. I mean, ignorance is a harsh word, but, you know, uh, when you believe in God, you're a lot less afraid of death. I saw a quote like that in, in the Week magazine. But we, So if you read this from the point of view, this is an article in The New Yorker. Um, if you read it from the point of view of an Afghan woman out in the hinterland in the in the rural villages 
you know, she ended up, at first she was like, great, the Americans are here. And then it became, oh, God, the Americans are here. And then the warlords we hired to be our, quote, army, unquote, were like totally, uh, you know, the same guys who the Russians hired. You know, the military gets out there and they they do what they can with what they got and they use whatever they have to target the supposed enemy, which in this case was the Taliban. And they're just trying to generate reports back to D.C. that show everybody the mission's going well. And, and then we reverse course. I think what we should have done was try to defend the, the urban areas and leave the rural areas to the, whatever they wanted, frankly. And, and try not to do any harm out there. But, you know, when you send a military force out, it's hard to tell them not to do any harm. So, you know, in a way, it's just as well it's over. And since there's nothing I can do about it, at least reading that article gave me a little closure. You know, it was done badly. Uh, horribly. And it doesn't get Joe off the hook, but it's easier to live with. Now, here's an article by Carl Smith, who is a historian and professor emeritus of English, so has nothing better to do, at Northwestern University. And he wants to put up a great Chicago fire monument. Well, this led me to think of the phrase monumental stupidity. Maybe what we ought to do is erect a monument to the real Chicago heroes or... uh, the the major figures, at least, in the city. We could have a monument to stupidity. We could have a monument to corruption. We could have a monument to criminals. We could have a monument to twerkers, uh, street gang leaders. You know, these are the real uh, monumental figures in our society. So we might as well celebrate them. I read an article the other day about a, a, the Chicago crime tours. And, you know, these buses roll around to the old sites in the 20s, like El Capone, rat a tat a tat And now they have to worry about getting shot by our latter-day gangsters. And it's like, I have thought of this before. Why not have a tour of the real, you know, the real life stuff? Like, you know, take a bus over to Terror Town, so sure, at night, say, hey, here's... Here, here it is in real life, kids, you know, duck and cover. I don't think you'd get too many ticket takers. Now, back to the crime theme. Chicago's top cop, we're going after the gangs. Ha, ha, ha. And he goes into the details of uh, how they're going to do that. We're going after gangs, guns, and drugs. Really? People, places, and behaviors that drive both violence and public public disorder. But we're going to do it constitutionally. We're not going to violate anybody's rights. But gang control gangs are out of control in this city, and we're going after them to hold them accountable. Really? And then we're going to give them an ankle bracelet. You know, come on. It, who would believe this? A key component of his crime-fighting efforts was not working effectively. No kidding. Uh, 40 community safety officers will join the carjacking team. Well, what are they going to do? What they should do is go undercover. But gee, then we might have somebody get shot. And then we might have riots. Uh, What else here? 
this is the same recantation of uh, crime statistics. So they tried to get volunteers to go and work on the, quote, community safety team. There weren't enough volunteers. Gee, I wonder why. So that's how they put these young cops like Officer France out there who got her head shot on. The team started out with 300 cops. Now it's up to 800 because they started to force people to do it. Who would volunteer for that? You'd have to be out of your mind. And Do you really want to send crazy people out there? What you end up doing is sending the people with the least seniority. And they don't know what they're doing and they're easy meat for the gangs. It's insane. Now, on an unpleasant but less unpleasant topic, in my mind at least, uh, Biden's vaccine mandate gives employers cover, which I think is true. Uh, WeatherTech is a local company run by a guy named David McNeil, who's a Trump supporter. I'm surprised they let him see the light of day. Like, unlike that my pillow guy, he doesn't ruin his business by being too vocal about it. But he welcomes the government's help, help in getting the job done. Um, his biggest concern about the VAX mandated is that it doesn't go far enough. Now I'm going to keep this because one of my clients is the Illinois Manufacturing Excellence Council, I think it is, or committee, or whatever. And I, that would be a good article for them. So, you know, you may think I'm just amusing myself and maybe a listener or two. But I actually do, you know get something out of this exercise of reading the trib. Okay, now uh, they had a uh, 9-11 memorial thing which I couldn't even deal with. And then they got a picture of Lori and her wife. <laughs> Mayor Daly must be rolling over in his grave. Both, well the one, the other one's still alive. He must be rolling over in his bed. So, naturally, she touched on anti-Muslim racism. Now, the thing about Islam is it's not a race. It's a religion. Uh, But, details. Now, people did, you know, like they go after Sikhs right after 9-11. And Sikhs are, like, not Muslims. They're Indians who wear turbans. So, some of our less sophisticated... uh, Citizens one after them, which, you know, there was a lot of that, obviously. I remember the gas station down the street when I lived out in the Burbs. They were like, I don't know, some kind of Arab or whatever, and they were like, you know, putting flags out, I love USA. <laughs> they were scared, you know. I, I got it, but, you know, nobody held that against them. Um, and Lori says, in our city, we simply cannot have any hate toward anyone. Now, Lori is like a first-class hater, you know? If you listen to some of the things she's said on conference calls, what she really means is that, you know, you white people can't hate any of us, people of color, I think. Or you straight people can't hate, you know, don't hate me. You can't hate me, but I can hate you. That's okay. In any event, you know, why not pass an ordinance to outlaw hate? And that'll work just as well as the ordinance that outlaws guns. Good luck with that. You know, people are emotional. They have feelings. 
They have feelings that are positive and negative. They have feelings of love and like and hate and envy, and that is human nature, and that's why the world is the way it is. Until we change human nature, we are unlikely to be able to overcome hate crimes and such. And I don't think you can change human nature myself. It's been very persistent over the years. Um, Here's an article about Biden's shift in international priorities. Biden is moving to a post-9-11 posture, said Tom Donilon, who's an advisor of his long-term advisor. Uh, Now, this is all you need to know about Biden. Barbara Lee is a rep from uh, California, Democrat, naturally. She was the only member of Congress to vote against the September 14, 2001 resolution that gave Bush broad authority to use military force against terrorists. She says, so she's like the the woman who voted against uh, declaring war on the Japanese after Pearl Harbor. And she says Biden now understands that it may not work. The military first approach, well, that would have meant what? Um, I think somewhere later in this article, if I recall, she suggests alternatives. Maybe not, but we shall see. So the the Bloomberg uh, media is definitely what we would call mainstream politically. Because they are definitely, you know, Bloomberg is a Democrat, even though I think he ran as a Republican when he was mayor. Okay, I don't think Lee has any alternatives. Biden's team hoped the full U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in August would be a triumph instead of the September 11th university. Instead, it was a tragedy. It doesn't say that here. More than 100 Americans, thousands of Afghan allies left behind, 13 U.S. service members killed, uh, leaving Biden with the lowest approval rating of his presidency. Now, they say the timing of this had nothing to do with that, and that, my friends, is a lie. Now, Jim Clyburn, a South Carolina Democrat, and I believe he's black with a capital B. There's no pretty way to do something like that, meaning withdraw from Afghanistan. So it couldn't have possibly been done any better. The vast majority of the American people think we came out of there in a very clumsy way, he says, which is true. So I suspect hindsight being 2020, the president might do it differently if he had it to do all over again. Well, there you go. He's undercut his own position, and that's certainly true. As much as he says that uh, this was the best way to do it. As VP to Obama, whose own swift political rise was fueled by opposition to the Iraq War, which it was, Biden opposed Obama's surge of troops into Afghanistan. He returned from a 2009 visit, especially pessimistic about the U.S. nation-building endeavor, which was, you know, that was an accurate conclusion, too, obviously. 
and expressed caution ahead of the bin Laden raid, but ultimately told Obama to trust his gut. Well, okay, this is kind of a profile and courage piece about Joan, how smart he is and how prescient he is. Uh, Biden's skepticism for the U.S. of the U.S. capacity for nation building began with the Vietnam War. Where that well, there. I mean, there was a nation of sorts. Granted, we created it in '54 by drawing the line between North and South Vietnam, which, in retrospect, we probably should not have. We created another Korea situation, but that worked. See, you didn't know it wasn't going to work. And it was like split the difference. Solomon-like, cut the baby in half. Going in, he understood that going in and trying to build a nation just wouldn't work if you had corrupt leaders. So says Ted Kaufman, longtime Biden aide and former senator. Well, you know, corrupt leaders, I've come to the conclusion that corruption is better than incompetence. You know, Lori Lightfoot demonstrated that to me. And there's no angels in the world, but I, I take the point. If you could find some angels, that'd be nice, but we can't even find them here. After 9-11, Biden had a lot of anger about it. Well, that's good, I guess. Um, Biden has committed to continuing military strikes against foreign terrorists, but seeks to reframe American foreign policy objectives shifting the national focus to major nation competition and potential conflict with China and Russia. Which, honestly, is kind of back to where we were before 9-11. And I think, frankly, we've got the anti-terrorism thing down a lot better than we did then. That doesn't mean we're not going to get hit again, but uh, our defenses are a lot better than they were, obviously, as they should be. Uh, you have to be alert to a wide range of potential dangers without focusing heavily on one adversary. Now, that's a good point, too, really. Uh, Afghanistan, obviously, isn't the only place that these terrorists can be housed. And I would much rather do it death from above style rather than boots on the ground. You give these guys too big a target, and it's expensive, you know. It's probably more cost-effective to do it death from above. I don't think anybody's arguing with any of that. But the argument is... You cannot pull out chaotically like that, and you can't leave all these people who you talked into being a nation behind, unprotected. Those people are exposed because we went in there and exposed them. Now, the trouble is the Democrats don't consider we to include Republicans. So since this was a Republican policy, you know, they're on their own, and that's the trouble. We're not one nation where a bipolar nation fighting single-minded opponents. This is the truth in Vietnam, and this is the truth in Afghanistan and the war on terror. And the unity we had in World War II was bipartisan in both uh, you know, left and right, because the, the communists and uh, the West agreed that Hitler, fascism, had to be defeated. Ever since then... We've had no domestic consensus. Even if you go back to the the Rosenbergs giving n- nuclear secrets to the communists, you know? I mean, we've always had this division between the left and, and right extremes. And the center gets torn from pillar to post. So we are not single-minded. 
Now, neither were the communists, which is why they fell apart, but these fundamentalist Islamists still pretty much are. So the more single-minded your enemy is, and the more deeply their convictions are held, the less likely it is you're going to be able to outlast them or wipe them out. Now, here's the real profound courage. This is prescient Joe. Just before September 11th, Joe expressed concern that the Bush's, Bush administration's emphasis on building a missile defense system left the country vulnerable to terrorism. Now, I believe that was the Patriot system. I don't know if that was Star Wars. On September 10th, 2001, he warned against diverting all that money to address the least likely threat while the real threats come into this country in the hold of a ship, the belly of a plane, or are smuggled into a city in the middle of the night in a vial in a backpack. Well, yeah, I guess you've got to give him credit for that. I think that's more luck than skill, but still, good research. I'm sure that article came out of the... Uh, the White House uh, press relations team. So now here's a couple of Nobel Prize winners. One is that beards are armor. Uh, Nobel Prizes are getting handed out pretty indiscriminately. Maybe I had to apply for one. Um, they say that beards were probably selected uh, for by whatever, nature, evolution, God, pick your favorite. And uh, because if you got hit in the jaw and you had a beard, it would cushion the blow. So beards are sort of body armor, you know, made of protein. Now, the other study um, was about gum. And I used to be a gum chewer. I gave it up because it got me in trouble at a trade show one time. Um... So researchers determined already chewed gum stuck to the sidewalk for three months is still teeming with bacteria. Um, this has public health ramifications. Forensics, contagious disease control, bioremediation of wasting chewing gum residues. <laughs> so if you can walk and chew gum at the same time, that may not be good for public health. I don't know. Next thing you know, they'll want to outlaw chewing gum. But that's good for your uh, heartburn. That's why I started chewing it. And believe me, it's habit for me. I don't know what they put in that gum. But anyway, moving on. If you're looking for a job, which I always am, um, use the if you know somebody at the company, use the reference to get the interview, not score the job. Don't drop the name in the middle of the hiring process. Well, I rarely get even to the beginning of the hiring process, much less the middle. And this episode is, of course, sponsored by Terrific Writing, writing worth reading. You name it, I'll write it. And I do, I'm fortunate to have some clients. And one of them I got because my friend uh, was a CFO at the company. And I asked him to help me. And that's the only way I got it. So networking is still beating networking. Um, now, in the news briefing, uh, the U.S. is pulling missiles outside Saudi Arabia. These are our Patriot missiles that Joe was so concerned about. Perceptions matter. 
Whether or not they're rooted in a cold, cold reality, and the perception is very clear that the U.S. is not as committed to the Gulf as it used to be in the views of many people in decision-making authority in the region, says Christian Ulrichson, a research fellow at the James Baker III Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. Well, you know, I think most of us would say fine. You know, we've had nothing but trouble over there, including Afghanistan, including Iraq. And 9-11 really does go back to uh, the invasion of Kuwait and our decision to defend it. That's what ticked off bin Laden. Now, does that mean we shouldn't have done that? I don't know. But it does, it's clear to me that we wouldn't have done that unless it was for their oil. I mean, Roosevelt made that deal. So that we would protect the kingdom in return for their oil. And they kind of broke the deal in, in the 70s uh, because of the 73 Yom Kippur War. But, uh, you know, if we don't need their oil anymore, then we don't need to defend their oil. Let the Chinese do it. And the Chinese know they should be doing that, by the way. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, Joe is anti-U.S. energy independence anti-fracking, anti-everything, carbon. And so we actually had to encourage OPEC the other day to increase their production. And they told us to go pound sand, <laughs> which they have plenty of. So, you know, this, this is the contradictions of the democratic platform and philosophy. He's got to protect his left flank at all costs. And he's doing a good job of it, frankly. Pentagon spokesperson Jan Kirby acknowledged the redeployment of certain air defense assets. He said the U.S. maintained a broad, deep commitment to its Mideast allies, and that's like when your boss expresses confidence in you right before you get fired. But they can read the handwriting on the wall. Uh, somewhere in there, the Saudis say they're perfectly capable of defending themselves, which is fine by me. Um, yeah, here it is. Uh, the Saudi Defense Ministry said it's perfectly capable of defending its land, seas, and airspace and protecting its people. Well, then what do you need us for? So in that way, I'm kind of sympathetic with Trump and Biden. You know. Now, Lee's, uh, Robert E. Lee's statue was taken down. I guess it was put up in 1887. Um, I thought this all happened in the 20s, but apparently in Virginia it happened in 22 years after the war. And they put a time capsule in there, which fortunately they were unable to find. Somebody probably buried it. God knows what was in that. Um, but, you know, now everybody's tearing down these monuments. That gets back to my monumental stupidity riff earlier. Uh, but it's all it's all goofy as far as I'm concerned. And I initially, you know, I didn't care about it. I remember going to Austin, though, and seeing all these Confederate general statues on the uh, the I forget I can't remember the term like the promenade or whatever up to the state capitol I was like wow I guess the civil war isn't over and they're still there I think but um, you know I've decided that I didn't even know these statues were there you know that they're tearing down so what am I going to get all worked up about it who cares Atlanta Zoo gorillas contracted COVID-19 so, this is kind of odd, I think. You know, here we are now infecting the animal kingdom, which infected us. 
But evidently, uh, and they're getting the best of care, you know. I guess they can't be criticized for not getting vaccinated. But maybe we should have vaccinated the animals in the zoo. Fine by me if the people won't take it. Let's see. Taliban raised flag over Afghan seat of power to mark September 11th. Um, So this is kind of uh, their Independence Day. You know, they view it as victory in the American War. Following their victory in the Russian War, which we helped them with. So, you know, history is written by the victors. Now, here's a guy who's a plagiarism hunter in Salzburg, Austria. And there's a thing called Turn It, Turn it In. Uh, there are other plagiarism detection programs. And he, his job is, and I'm going to keep this one too, is to investigate academics and court opinions and books. And he bills 400 bucks an hour. Most of his clients are men seeking to discredit their ex-wives. <laughs> but never vice versa, interestingly enough. And people trying to undermine their neighbor's credibility in nasty disputes over property lines. Yeah, that's Germany for you. He says it's a gold mine of Austrians' schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is one of my favorite words, which is joy in the suffering of others. He was a math prodigy, and his teacher said, may you remain humble and triumph. But it turns out he wasn't very good at math when he got up to the uh, to the university level, and he took the idiot degree everyone studies, communications. Or in my case, marketing and journalism. But you can make a living doing it. Uh, because the smart kids need the dumb kids to write their stuff, you know? I can explain it to the people who are not as smart as the geniuses, and I can understand it well enough to do that. That's my superpower. It's not much of a superpower, but, you know, Scrivener Man... Um, he criticizes one politician, I think, for poor knowledge of German. If we evaluated our political candidates on their mastery of the English language, we could spare ourselves a lot of uh, grief. But believe it or not, that's a keeper, too. Uh, I'm supposed to keep one other article. I hope I didn't throw it away. I have to remember to look for it. Um, Here we go. Now, when retirees should amend a tax return, I may have to do this because I owe my friends at the IRS some dough. There are some limits. Deadline for doing so is generally three years after filing or two years after paying, whichever is later. Now, I haven't paid them, so maybe, maybe I still have a chance. I had that one big year in 2018, and... Ever since then, it's been downhill financially, but, you know, I reported my income from the sale of my shares of my business. And I still wonder if I should have done that, but they said I'd go to jail if I didn't. Now, 61% of Americans would take a pay cut to keep working remotely. 85% say they prefer to apply to jobs that offer fully remote or hybrid work. And that, I think, is going to 
be the thing that decides it. And that's not good for me because if people get to work from home, they're not going to be inclined to buy big expensive houses or formally expensive houses in like Lincoln Park, you know, because the higher end people are the ones who get to work from home. Which is why the mid-range $500,000 condos are moving in this town, but the, you know, over a million houses are not. A new study by Bankrate shows approximately 55% of Americans are planning to switch jobs. Among younger Gen Z and millennials, that's 77%. Wow. Now, just because they're planning doesn't mean they will, but... You know, you're going to be competing on that work from home because you can take care of your dog, and everybody has dogs down here. Now, here's a quote. This is a pretty good article. Don't let goal setting get in the way of happiness. Um, George Orwell wrote an essay, Can Socialists Be Happy? It would seem that human beings are not able to describe nor perhaps imagine happiness except in terms of contrast. He wrote about those who imagine future utopias unlike the worlds in which they are living and argued that they are like people with a toothache who think happiness comes only in not having a toothache. You set the goal of not having a toothache and organize your life and worries around that goal. When the pain is gone, you think you've achieved your utopia. And you haven't, of course. And those who are religious know that there is no heaven on earth. They don't need to have a heaven on earth because they believe in a heaven in heaven. That's one good thing about being religious. A release from anxiety arises when you focus on the present rather than either the past or the future, which is why it's good to have something to do, work even. (laughs) Work, like Maynard used to say on Dobie Gillis. Proximate planning and goal setting can be helpful. So in other words, you know, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do in an hour? What do I want to have done by the end of the day, right? Not, what am I going to be, where am I going to be in five years? And I think if I was in an interview, where am I going to be in five years? I'd say, you know what, that depends a lot on what happens today. That depends a lot on what I do right now. And I live in the moment. So... I'll let five years take care of itself. I'm going to take care of what's in my inbox in in real time. That ought to shut the guy up. And if he doesn't like it, I don't want to work for him. Although I would work for anybody. I volunteered to be a Supreme Court justice because I got a recruitment thing on Facebook from the American Bar. So they apparently think I'm a lawyer, and they're the ones who recommend Supreme Court justices, or they used to. I'll be happy to be, if they want to pack the court, I'll sign me up. I'll put the robes in, I'll vote any way you want, as long as I get the money. And it's a job for life. I'll take it. I'll sell out. I will. Uh, Put another way, anxiety arises when the future becomes constantly contrasted with the present. And we live our lives primarily aimed at a future that may never come to be. This is true, I think. Our identities then become expressed in terms of that future, rather than centering on who we are at the present. It's easy to drift from setting goals to becoming the goals one sets or that are set by others. In other words, you know, if I didn't become the great success my mother wanted me to be, I walk around wearing that jacket for the rest of my life even though she's no longer here. 
And I, you know. But I was thinking maybe I did turn out to be what my mom wanted to be because I took care of her, you know, before she died. And that's what she really needed, somebody to take care of her. So. And now I take care of my wife. So that's my life. Take care of my mother. Take care of my wife. I suppose there's worse hobbies or avocations. All right. We got three keepers. Not bad. Let's see how we're doing in time for my many listeners. Ooh, we're almost out of time, folks. 15 minutes. And you can save 15% on terrific writing. And I stole that. I got plagiarized. That German guy would get me. Um, okay, optimal numbers of hours you should work in a day is actually 7.6 hours, which is exactly what the non-exempt um, federal guideline is, oddly enough. 38 hours a week, and that's what uh, the number of hours worked is in Denmark, which is consistently one of the world's happiest countries. So if you want to go be happy, go to Denmark. Happiness expert, Dan Butner. I don't think I could do that job. He says, try to work 30 to 35 hours a week, which he considers to be part-time. I try to work 2,000 hours a week because I get paid by the hour these days. Mostly. He recommends taking six weeks of vacation a year, which is the optimal amount for happiness. Now, how does he know that? I don't know. Probably some study, right? It's like the Dilbert study philosophy. By the way, I'm going to try to pull a Dilbert reading. Now, in A&E, they've got a ton of fall arts plays. The, you know, Broadway in Chicago is back, and I don't know how that's going to work with this Delta thing. So I have a feeling a lot of people are going to lose money on that. But we'll see. They should demand vaccination as far as I'm concerned. Now, here's the Dilbert. Speaking of vacation, I have two weeks of vacation I need to use by year-end. Should I take an inconvenient and expensive trip to someplace I've already seen in photos and videos? That's just how I think about this. Or should I hang around at home feeling useless and bored? And he's talking to Dogbird. And I used to talk to Louie, but Louie died. So Dogbird says, maybe you could volunteer to help the less fortunate. And Dilbert says, I hate the less fortunate because they're all happier than I am. <laughs> I'm surprised Dilbert didn't get canceled. You know, him and his dog are both white. Maybe you need a wife to make you do things you don't want to do. Dilbert says, that's not a bad idea. Are there any other benefits of marriage? He says, yes. For example, you'll never need to wonder if you have any major character flaws. I think that's a fair summation of... Married life. Stay single, my friends. All right. Now, Andy Dalton just bought a $2.5 million home in Lake Bluff, and I think I'm going to call his Lake Bluff because I don't think he should be that secure and setting roots down. I don't know how long his contract is, but if I had this Justin Fields sitting on the bench behind me, I, don't, I think I would rent 
And we'll see what he does tonight. The Bears will be humiliated on national television. And, of course, I'll be watching because I'm addicted. I can't help myself. All right. Forty-eight minutes into it, twelve minutes left. Now I believe the Tribune printed the same article twice in the same edition, which means somebody's not paying attention to the editing function. It's an article about educating yourself before risking your money on a home per repurchase. It's in the real estate section. I think it was in the personal success section too. Um, come on guys. You can only use it once in the same paper. That plagiarizing please German guy will be after you, you know what I mean? This goes out. Okay, now I know somebody who should know better. This is an educated person. UFC law school graduate. And she hired some outfit her maid recommended to move her, and it was a freaking disaster. So if you're going to move, uh, here's what to keep in mind. Get three bids, ask for references, research whether or not a mover is verified by the American Moving and Storage Solutions Certification Program, ProMover. Um, make sure they have a real address. Don't give them a deposit. Never pay cash. Look for branded trucks. Examine the contract. Buy extra insurance. And if it does go south, call moverescue.com. I mean, this is a horror story. Now, this is in the Tribune. They have a special advertising section. I think it's like prime time, they call it, which means for old people. Mostly, it just advertises like retirement homes. But that, my friends, is something to be mindful of should you end up moving somewhere. Now, i got ten minutes left, and I will spend it on... There's a cover story in Parade Magazine about Clint Eastwood. And Clint is, like, not, not a bad interview, but not the greatest interview. But he's very, you know, honest. So... I found some notable things, which I will share with you. And I, I'm a Clint fan. You know. He made a fool out of himself at the Republican convention in 2012 with the empty chair routine. Remember that? But um, he's done some good work. And he says he's lucky to be here, you know, like uh, Keith Richards. Who would have thought Keith Richards would outlive Charlie Watts? And he's humble. He says, you know, my career has been based on luck. He's had 70 acting roles, 45 directing credits in Hollywood, in the movies, that means, as opposed to TV. Uh, but now TV, like Netflix and stuff. By the way, I just did my first over-the-top thing. I subscribed to Peacock so I could watch Notre Dame game yesterday. Six bucks a month. It's the NBC over-the-top product. I don't know what they call it, but that's the industry term. He has eight kids from 24 to 67. His oldest kid is 67. So he was 23 when that, 22 when that began. He has great grandkids, still golfs, lives in Carmel, 
he says, don't let the old man get in. You know, keep working. And so I guess that's not what I wanted to do, but that's what I'm ending up doing. Maybe that's for the best. Who knows? He just made a new, another movie called Cry Macho. The story was given to him almost 40 years ago. He didn't think he was old enough for the part, so he recommended Bob Mitchum. And now he is old enough for the part. He says he doesn't like to intellectualize on his own thoughts. And I think that's probably good. Uh, you know, somebody says, why it took you so long to make another Western? Yeah, he just kind of felt like it. The muse came to him. It's like humor. You cannot intellectualize humor. That's what they're doing at Second City now. And I cannot imagine going there and thinking I'm going to laugh. And then when he started acting, he found there's a technique. You just bury yourself in the moment when he got hooked. And, you know, it's living in the moment. That's what my, my late friend Tom Kelly used to say, live in the moment. That's what an athlete does. When he filmed the Spaghetti Westerns, uh, the director didn't speak English. And he said by the end, he could say my name and I could say his name, and that was it. So he didn't pick up the lingo, the lingua franca. He says he's not self-analytical. In terms of the proudest, uh, what roles he's proudest of, Unforgiven, he mentions, the outlaw Josie Wales. He says that he always has blueberry juice in the fridge. I may try that. They ask him what the biggest misconception is about him, and he says, that's not for me to say. <laughs> that's what I mean about him not being the best interview. But that's a good answer. Ask somebody else. And then Million Dollar Baby, which was a good but jarring you know, wrenching, gut-wrenching movie. I I watched it once, that was it. And about the Oscars, he didn't get an an Emmy, an Academy Award until he was 62. He says, the nicest thing was I got to take my mom. <laughs> he says, the statue's someplace around here, I don't know where. Um, this is a guy who doesn't need outside approval. And the Oscars, to me now, are a joke. I mean, I'll watch the old ones. But now, you know, I don't know what it is, but it's not what it was. He considers himself a child of the Depression. Says, I bag groceries for 34 cents an hour, which was probably eight bucks an hour now. Says, I'm not in it for the dough. And there's a ballad in the movie The Mule called Don't Let the Old Man In. And he says, it's not hard for him to live that way because he believes it. He says, I've met a lot of older people in my life and some are pathetic. <laughs> and some are inspirational. Some people deal with aging terribly and others deal with it just great. So far, I think I'm dealing with it pretty well. Knock on wood. But, you know, it's your health. What motivates him to get out of bed in the morning is getting out of bed in the morning, which is a circular answer. But I don't feel 91 because I don't know what 91 is supposed to feel like. And I guess I don't know what 66 is supposed to feel like. And he says he remembers when his grandfather turned 90. He was fairly vigorous and he thought, well, 
You could have a good life if you're in decent shape, which is true. Um, and his mother lived to be 97, so... Let's see. He says he's not going to retire. Maybe, he says, people who retire, maybe they got something else they could do and keep busy, but I don't. And his go-to advice uh, is be positive and keep working on it. Don't give up early. Since I'm basically a positive person, I like looking how to correct something that doesn't work. Something can always be done. Well, that's all good advice, I think, so thought I would share that. And I think, yep, we're done. Uh, 56 minutes of your life. I'll never get back. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm not going to retire from my podcast either. You know, someday, somebody, other than my very, very loyal fans, who I so deeply appreciate, will listen. Or somehow, some way, I'll figure out how to make money on this. Maybe I'll transcribe them and uh, turn it into a book nobody reads. <laughs> now, from the podcast nobody listens to, the book nobody will read. <laughs> Meditations by Marcus Aurelius Nugent. I don't know, whatever. But when I'm gone, <clears throat> anybody who wants to find out what a jerk I was will be able to listen to these uh, you know, Colonel Kurtz type of apocalypse now rantings from the jungle of my mind. And with that, I bid you do Live long, prosper, uh, be careful out there. Delta's ready whether you are or not. And we'll uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye.